Welcome to Common Voice, the podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Common Voice. My name is Jamie Riley. I'm the host of the podcast for the College of Public Health uh, at Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, I am a speech pathologist and uh, background in neuroscience. I know nothing about public health, uh, so this will be a <laughs> this will be a journey uh, of the uh, I don't know of discovery for all of us. Um, but my guest today, as usual, knows a lot about public health, uh, Dr. Laura Cinco. Uh, Dr. Cinco, nice to meet you, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so first, I wanted, so you are a new faculty member in the college at Temple University. I wanted you to, so we have students who are, go, are going to be, who are going to love you across lots of different disciplines. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, where you're from and your journey of getting here. Sure. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with students and, and faculty as well. It's being new. It's, you know, being the new kid in school. You know, you can feel that I'm getting transported back to when I was the new kid back in second grade. And there's something about that newness that still sits with you. So I, I'm excited to share what I learned, but also to learn from everybody here. I mean, there's so much. I've already learned so much in the past couple of months. Um, but yes, my name is Laura Cinco. Uh, I am a nurse uh, by clinical training. I received my bachelor's in nursing at University of Michigan. Um, I am from New Jersey originally though. So I got my BSN out there. I also got my PhD out in Michigan, um, but really wanted to return to the East Coast at some point to be near family uh, and, and near my people, as I say. Um, but at, when I was out in Michigan, I was a psych mental health nurse. Uh, I worked on an inpatient child and adolescent uh, unit. And so when I was there, I really got exposed to trauma and how it can impact not only our physical health, but our mental health. And then really got interested in this idea of recovery. What is healing? And recognizing that it's more than just your symptoms that are bothering you going away, but there's also a lot of things people seem to be looking for in their healing that I kind of felt like we were falling short uh, in the medical setting. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I got my PhD out in Michigan, uh, that really was my topic of interest. So how do we heal after trauma? And specifically for me, how do we hear, heal after gender-based violence? So that's sort of a term that I think we don't often use in the non-academic setting, but really what that is, uh, kind of falls into different buckets, but intimate partner violence, uh, potentially child abuse, uh, sexual violence. So any sort of violence that impacts people of a certain gender disproportionately or violence that is targeted at a person because of their gender. So a lot of times violence against women falls under that umbrella, um, but also we know violence against non-binary people as well falls under that umbrella. So anyways, came to Philadelphia for a postdoc. I did a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania um, and there really just expanded the work. I did a lot of health policy work thinking about advocacy uh, for survivors of violence. Um, I also work as a sexual assault nurse examiner in Philadelphia. Uh, so I brought my clinical expertise something a little bit more focused for my area of interest. Uh, and now I'm here. So throughout my time, I really wanted to understand really broadly what is healing and what are these social, cultural, and structural things that 
influence the healing journey. And so to understand healing, I've looked at it in a variety of ways and I'm excited to share that with you, but like photography, uh, video, different uh, storytelling, how can we help survivors share their healing journeys and also discover what their needs will be going forward? That's terrific. I mean, I think one of the things that I, from, I've heard your name all over the place. And one of the things that people are really excited about is this idea of, of uh, you communicating with people using really, really different non-traditional sort of we as researchers of non-traditional modalities and being able to connect with people in just ways that are, are just, I don't know, so essential. Um, so before we get to, you, to your research, I want one thing that might be helpful, uh, I think that a lot of listeners would be would want to know about would be we have these sort of conventional ideas of what nurses do, right? Uh, giving shots, drawing blood, uh, um, you know, coming in and taking care of your IV. And that's not right, right? The nurses do a whole lot more. Um, and so your work uh, particularly has you know, really wrapped in uh, uh, epidemiology, clinical psychology, um, and really is more about healing. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, like your path and challenges? So would you say that is like, there's a path in nursing, in traditional nursing for that, or did you have to carve it out yourself? Can you speak a little bit about that? Like for people who might be interested in going the path that you, that you went? Yeah, and I appreciate that question because it's something I, I kind of feel like I've been flying by the seat of my pants in a lot of ways. Like you, you always think you, you have the five-year plan and it's just never the five-year plan, right? There's always things that fall into your lap and opportunities that you choose to take or not take. Uh, so I chose to go into nursing. Um, it's kind of the stereotypical thing, but like I wanted to help people. I wanted to have a major in college that I felt like I could really get that hands-on experience. Um, and I love nursing for that. You get We got in the clinical setting um, really my first year at University of Michigan, going in nursing homes, even just doing like heights, weights, blood pressure, what you would think of as basic nursing things. But then moving on towards as I got to more senior year, like being in the neonatal ICU and all these different things. So mm -hmm. I think that is very typical for nursing, that sort of path. But what I noticed is during these different clinical rotations, I always kind of felt like I didn't fit. And I was like, mm -hmm. did I make the wrong choice? Like, what is it about, you know, being in a, in a G, you know, a gastrointestinal unit that I'm like, this isn't really my thing. I thought I wanted to be a nurse, um, but I found like the common thread for me was the patients I was drawn to. So, uh -huh. you know, when I was in, let's say the neonatal ICU, it was the mother whose baby was going through withdrawals and she was having this, this guilt and shame about, can I keep my child? Can I keep my child safe? And all these different things. Um, it was, you know, doing labor and delivery and unfortunately the pregnancies that had complications and all the mental health things that went with that. So for mm -hmm. me, I found that nugget and I was like, okay, mental health, I think is my thing. Yeah. Now, what do I do with it? Uh -huh. And so when I was in the clinical setting, I found that there were all these little things I wished could be done differently, but I felt kind of powerless as a new nurse. Um, and so with this path, what sort of fell in my lap was what they called a BSN to PhD program. So we know that less than 1% of nurses have a PhD. It's a very non-traditional path. So they gave me a little bit of a financial incentive if I got into this program, but really they wanted to make change agents. And that, that sort of word rang true to me. It's like, I wanna change, I wanna disrupt things. I kind of wanna mm -hmm. ruffle people's feathers in a good way and try to challenge the way we traditionally give care. So I think for folks that are interested in like this non-traditional path, I think a lot of schools of nursing and colleges in general have these options, 
but we often don't get exposed to research that really excites and empowers us. So mm -hmm. when I first saw research that pulled in photography, pulled in all these different methods, I was like, wait, research actually could be a really interesting way to make change. And then I sort of filled in the gaps on how to actually get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so um, related to that, uh, so working in a medical model where it's, it, you know, traditionally is pretty hierarchical of, of like telling people what to do is a very different model than but the healing work that you've done where you're sort of empowering people to, uh, to act as their own change agents in some respects, right? So you're at this nexus point where it is social work, clinical psychology, nursing, all have very common interests in helping people to, but it, it is very different than the traditional medical model, which is we are gonna tell you what to do. You're gonna go home and take a pill and get better. Um, did, you, did you feel like you were swimming upstream at times with like having to establish your own footing in that model? Or I mean, it's maybe you're still having to do that. <laughs> yeah, you're you're speaking my language here. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that is constantly difficult. And why I loved nursing is that we were exposed to all these different disciplines and all their different ways of thinking. And mm -hmm. so I found myself vibing with some of the social workers and some of the yeah. clinical psychologists and things. And so I think it's what I really liked about working in the healthcare setting is you're really exposed to these different players and you see their different approaches and you sort of try on what works best for you. But I know for research, it's constantly difficult to get funding specifically because right now we focus from a very deficit-based model. You know, mm -hmm. we, we want to say, okay, well, your PTSD went down and depression went down, uh, so you're healed. And yeah. so if you're not looking at those sort of outcomes, people are saying, well, how do you know that you're doing meaningful work? They're not really thinking about well-being or post-traumatic growth or sense of purpose, sense of self, these things that I guess sometimes they consider like soft outcomes, but people are really looking for these things. And if you listen closely in the clinical setting, they're almost begging for it. And, and yeah. you know, if we're gonna be in a model that's supposed to really serve people and really um, inform their health, then I think we have to really meet people where they're at. So yes, I think it's constantly an uphill battle, but also there are, I think it's important to find your people because you think you're you're alone and then there's power in numbers and there's more of us out there than I initially thought when I embarked on this journey. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Like, so, you know, a lot of what you do is involving, is not just you, it's establishing a pipeline and getting involved in, in places where people are seeking you know, the interventions that you have, like, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I mean, so working during your, during your postdoc at Penn, um, and I don't know how postdocs in nursing are structured, were you doing some patient care in addition to research? Like, were you out there in the clinics? And did that give you yeah. footing, like a, a sort of like a, in the door that you're already sort of, okay, good. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think every postdoc's different. It was really important to me since I am fairly young in my practice, I wanted to maintain a clinical practice because it really informs my work and really seeing what survivors need on the ground is how I know how I can tailor my interventions and what are my next questions. Um, and so really keeping the pulse on that was really important. I also used to work as an advocate for a sexual violence center uh, and domestic violence center. And so when I got here, it was really important for me to also establish relationships with the local uh, intimate partner violence organizations and sexual assault organizations because they've been doing this work for years in this community. And I'm new to, not new to the work, but new to Philly. And so they were really important people to be able to partner with, to be like, hello, I'm new here. 
I know, I know what survivors need out in Michigan, but Philadelphia, it's a different beast. There's different infrastructure, there's different historical traumas. And so trying to really bring those people in and then have that inform the work has been really important. Yeah, yeah, wow, that, that is, is, that's awesome. Um, so uh, let's pivot now to your work. Uh, so um, maybe you could tell a little bit, so tell the viewers, so you, you have a film that was, you have a film that is beautiful, by the way, um, and that uh, uh, I'll leave you to talk about, but it, I, it has been, uh, received several awards already. Um, it's showing at Temple soon. Um, and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, um, and your organization. Sure. Yeah, so when I was doing my dissertation out in Michigan, um, so the, the type of research study that I did was I had a, a survey, like you would anticipate in some quantitative research. I then had people that were interested come in to meet with me one-on-one -on -one and do what we call an ethnographic narrative interview. So it was about an hour interview and it had a series of activities to really explore the survivor, their social world. Um, and so just for context, um, my research was initially on campus sexual violence survivors, people who are women identifying. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was the population I was working with, but they would come in, we would do a social network. So we'd plot out, you know, who would you interact with on a daily basis, weekly basis, who causes you conflict, who supports you to really get people settled and really try to see them in their world. Uh, we then went into a body map. So we had survivors map out on an outline of a body. How does it feel to be in your body with words, with images, with whatever way they process things best? So we'd see things like bodily pain. We'd see things more metaphorically, like someone drew spikes on their hands saying, I feel like I can't get close to people anymore. Um, and mm -hmm. seeing that in that way was extremely powerful. Um, then we went into a lifeline. So the highs and lows in their life across time and really mapping out their emotional experiences. And then finally, we had a card sort focused on a most recent low point. So they would sort through the cards and pick out different cards that felt true of them at this low point, and then cards that did not. Knowing that whether the low point was a fight with a friend, an issue at work, often our past traumas get pulled into these new situations, whether or not they're actually related to the violence we experienced. So after that, luckily people were still not sick of me, um, but we did a follow-up photography piece, which is really where a lot of this magic developed, in my opinion. So folks went out and they, I really wanted to know, okay, so I learned about you. I know about your life. Now go out in your world and just document moments that feel healing, um, but also moments that maybe feel more challenging because healing is not just the rainbows and butterflies. It's also the, the times that are hard and how we process and work through those hard times. Um, and so really the purpose was not to go out and force something. Don't go to yoga. If you never go to yoga, I'm not going to judge you. Um, but just what are you doing to manage yourself and your health during these times? Um, and people brought these photographs back. We processed them um, and talked about them. And so with all that, we had all this rich data um, on people, their lives, their stories, um, what it's like when they navigated the world. And when you see a photograph, I think they say the, you know, the, a picture's worth a thousand words, but it truly is the case. You can't unsee some of these things that people are taking, these seemingly mundane moments that have a profound impact on our functioning. Um, and so for me, I had all these photographs, all these amazing narratives, and I knew I was gonna publish. I had big academic dreams, but I recognized as a student recently myself, it's really inaccessible sometimes to read a research article and feel the real feelings of what went into that. 
So I wanted to be able to do something a little bit more non-traditional to bring the findings to the campus where I worked. So what we did was we did two things. One, we did a video, which you had mentioned, which documented four survivors healing journeys. Uh, and we used surrogate speakers, which means that the research was completely confidential and anonymous. But they, these people gave me permission to have somebody else share their story. Um, an, an actor at uh, University of Michigan, all unpaid. It was truly a labor of love. Um, they were great. Um, and to really share that, the person across time to show these are real people. They're your barista at the coffee shop. They're your research assistant. They're the president of the university that seems like they have it all together. Uh, and so really to bring that human element. So we had that video. And then what I wanted to do was take the healing themes that we found, this rebuilding trust, uh, connecting with yourself, these different themes, and to create an uh, in-person photography exhibit where students could come in and, and parents and faculty and learn about the healing journey, whether you're a survivor or not, and also connect you with resources on campus because it's really difficult to know where to go when these things happen. So we had a guest book and all these wonderful things. We had like over 300 people come. I could have never guessed that people would be attending, you know, it's like you're throwing a party, you hope people show up. Mm -hmm. um, but it was truly amazing. Like we had a guest book and there was, I'll never forget a high schooler's mom wrote in the book saying, I brought my 14 and 15 year old daughters here. So they know if this happens to them, like that healing is possible. Wow. And like, wow, like, can you talk about impact, you know? And so I think it's really important when we're doing this work to think about not only macro system impact, but also these more micro um, individual impact that we can have just by making our work a little bit more creative and accessible. Yeah. So two questions about this. So you did this as your as your PhD work, which is really a daunting thought, right, for a PhD student because you've got the institutional buy-in. Uh, you know, and in Michigan, where uh, you know this wasn't at University of Michigan, where a lot of at Michigan State, where a lot of the dialogue is happening right now. Um, uh, you know, that institutional buy-in is not always pleasant, right? You've got the institution who's fighting you to say, hey, we don't have a problem, you know? And so, and you as a PhD student are in a uniquely powerless position to fight against the whole university who can be like, hey, you know, maybe you should stick around an extra year before we sign off on your PhD. So, um, so that's hard. So maybe like, let's bank that as the first question you'll get. And then the second question is more nuts and bolts. Like, the, the film is just a beautifully done film just on its technical merits as well. Uh, I was curious if you had a background or hobbies in photography or filmmaking and how you came to that. So the, those yeah, are the two questions. Like, so let's question. do the first question, which is, you know, task of an institutional, uh, institutional buy-in, right? Yeah. How do you manage and that's that? Where I think that that's such an important thing because I think that's, points again to like find your like finding your allies and find uh -huh. the people that think like you and for me it was we had at Michigan we had a really amazing uh sexual assault center for students and so mm -hmm. connecting with them early and saying hey like you guys are doing amazing work before I even wanted to start my research I was like can I just volunteer with you guys and just get the lay of the land about what students need and so uh -huh. I started as an advocate for a while there to just like you know, we would meet students, students who were a part of the university who went to the emergency room for a sexual assault, we'd be the first ones there to provide support. And so seeing that, again, I can't under, like, overstate enough that importance. So having their buy-in and their help as I advocate for these things was huge. Um, I also had a mentor 
that, I mean, I will say, like, sometimes I think being now a professor, everyone's like, oh, you must have been a, a straight A student and, and 4.0. And, you know, I worked hard, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I wasn't the perfect student. I think I just had a lot of passion and I found a mentor that matched my passion and was like, hey, we can do some really cool things together. And so my mentor, Dr. Denise Ann Arnault, I still am close to to this day. And she really took me under her wing about how do you do do this sort of work in an institution that may or may not agree that there's a problem. And mm. so for me, I think framing it in healing is like one thing that was really important just for legal and all this stuff was like, you didn't have to go to University of Michigan to be a part of my study. So I could just kind of say, this is campus sexual violence healing in general. There's obviously some, some specifics that go into that, but I think that helped that I wasn't saying these are only university, this university's survivors, this is sort of anybody in the Michigan area that could meet me for an interview. And so that makes it a little bit easier. But I actually really found, surprisingly, like I cold emailed many people and folks seem to really like this concept of healing. And I really didn't do it for, for likes. I just like thought it was needed. But I think there's a recognition that we talk a lot about all the bad things that can happen, all the scandals, all the issues. And in the immediate aftermath, there's so much media attention. And then what happens to survivors when the media attention dies down? And so I think recognizing that need made people a little bit more open to exploring this, especially given how much we know sexual violence impacts campus. Yeah. So the, the resources that you set up, was this a platform that was like, a platform that sort of follows you as a as the person who runs it or is it or or was it you know hosted at Michigan stays at Michigan like is this some it, this is yours right like that like yeah or not is, for not necessarily just for is it Michiganders I cannot remember the word what is it like if you live in Michigan aren't you called a Michigander Michigander yeah for sure uh, it's I, I don't a, know if anyone's ever used I know probably like the <laughs> anyway don't worry they have like the hand where they say where you live on the hand and the mitten is like it's a whole oh, Michigan thing I've learned yeah. a lot um being there for eight years um <laughs> but I'm an honorary Michigander but you yeah go. you know I think that is something that is interesting so through my work, you know, I was actually talking to another faculty recently about this. Everyone said, Laura, you're never gonna graduate. That is such a complicated study. And you wanna do this exhibit? No way, we have a three-year program and we're not paying for a fourth year. So you better get it together. Um, and what I found was that it was actually extremely easy, actually scarily yeah. easy to recruit because I recognize that we don't often wanna talk about these sorts mm. of things. Um, and so I recruited fairly quickly. Um, which I think was really helpful. But then it made me realize like when I was interviewing, people were saying things like, I, I like this because I can tell my story, wipe my hands clean and walk away. Yeah. And you're not my therapist. You're not gonna tell me to, to go do homework now, or mm -hmm. you're not gonna, you're not someone in my family who's gonna start crying. I mean, not that I'm not moved to tears sometimes to these stories, but you don't have this invested interest where you're trying to manipulate my decisions or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so I felt hurt a real need for uh -huh. an anonymous way to share your story and also to feel less alone because gosh, I would say 60% explicitly said, I don't know anybody else that experienced this. When yeah. we know one in four women experience these things. So mm -hmm. like, wow, 
that's major. Yeah. Uh, so I created this. So I had this idea that I, with, with the exhibit, I was like, there should be a, a standing way people can share their stories and build community. So I had this dream. Um, and then I went to a conference and I met these two tech guys, super funny. Their names, Kyle and Brendan, love them to death. These two basically straight white dudes, like yeah. we want to help sexual violence, mostly uh -huh. for women. And I was like, who are you? But they're, yeah. oh my gosh, they were amazing. And so they had experienced in their social circle, a couple friends who had these things happen. And they uh -huh. really were like, we have all these skills. We want to make an impact. So we joined together. We started to create this nonprofit called Our Wave. Uh -huh. um, and so that's where a lot of my work has now been hosted. And so we have an anonymous story sharing platform. People can share artwork um, and we're slowly building in new features. So like how do you create a system where people can comment and interact that's not triggering? So we're like pilot testing these things. So yeah. it really is nice to have an interdisciplinary team. Um, so it's separate from the university. We're hope it's becoming more and more of a national resource. We've had a lot of amazing partnerships um, and a lot in the works. So I would say, yes, it is something that is, a, is national. It's mine, but I really is ours. We're a team of eight. Uh, and it's just really grassroots on the ground. None of us are paid. We just do yeah. it because we love it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think, you know, this is this is so tricky because I think a lot of listeners, uh, particularly students, don't really understand how the relationship between universities and, you know, sort of independent nonprofits. Universities are very much like, you know, you think like, okay, they're institutions of higher learning, but really they're corporations in many respects. And, what you know, once they see that there's something, it's either out of fear that they need to control it or something, right? It's sort of like the tradition. So, there's always this tenuous balance between keeping your this site, which is your nonprofit, the identity apart from the university where you work, um, and then also the idea of tying the research in, into it. Universities have this like are like they just don't know how often don't know how to handle it. Um, you're in this sort of like middle point where they want to control it, they want to put identity standards, they want to roll it under their health care system, but it's not for that. Um, and then, you know, uh, so other from the listeners, we can't just do research on whenever we have a question that we want to ask, we can't just ask it. There's an institutional review board that has to say like, okay, people are protected. So can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some of the challenges and like, you have a great resource for, for promoting healing, um, but also for giving you data that shows what works for promoting healing. Um, but those are not necessarily like, there's a, a somewhat firewall from each other. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? That's, you're asking the right questions because I'm just figuring all of this out. So like when uh -huh. I was a student, it was fairly easy because I was just a student and this was my nonprofit and you know, whatever. And so now mm -hmm. that I'm at an institution, it's something that is extremely delicate. And, you know, we are just getting to the stage now where we have around 300 stories um, and counting. And so what we do also is we have the ability to create infrastructure for other nonprofits. So for example, It's On Us and Rape on Campus is a really big campus sexual violence nonprofit. And so what we do is we create the skeleton so that they can have their own branded site. This is, these are the It's On Us stories, but they actually have the ability if people are interested and they check yes, to double populate on our story base. So our story base is now exponentially growing. And so we've always had this idea of this is amazing data. And, and we always have that clear in our mission, right? Like you are, a lot of people want to give back, but 
but they don't yeah. want it to be so personal. And so that anonymity is helpful. So now we're starting to build this data and we're like, okay, now we have this data. Now, how do we use this data in a way that respects your privacy, that is ethically sound with institutions and IRBs? Um, and that's constantly the challenge. So I think for me, the one thing that I've learned is just running everything by the powers that be, the IRB king, extremely transparent and mm -hmm. always really centering the mission. It's, it's not about getting an extra publication for my career. It's right. this is a now publicly available data set mm -hmm. um, that in theory, anybody could, could look at. I mean, it's public, mm -hmm. but we also have the ability on the back end to do things like machine learning. And like, yeah. could we, for example, look at these narratives and start to find archetypes of survivors to be able to nudge people resources that could better suit their needs. I mean, wow, talk about, you know, it's really weird to think about, you know, technology in, in that way, because it can be extremely invasive but also can be amazing for a survivor who just googles like sexual assault healing like what do i do like if we could be right. the first resource you know so there's always these things there's so many so much promise and so i will say if i had a great answer for that i wish i i would share it but a lot of it is just like being really transparent and just saying look my, my mission is clear and this is sitting here and how do we partner together to meet all of these needs and and if i want to put in a grant does it go through the university? Does it go through the nonprofit? How does it work? So I don't know the answer, but they, I think the clear, this thing for me is just to be transparent and honest and let the mission drive the work. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of neat parts to you. I think that the listeners are all, will already kind of figure out from just hearing your story, but but also this idea that like, you know, and you, you talked about machine learning, but your research will like ultimately involve lots of different constituents, right? Like, so you could, you'll have computer science people, you'll have data security people. So you'll have social workers. There's all these people that could really tie in to make this an amazing, I mean, it already is an amazing platform, but to, to, you know, protect people, but also like to give people, to give the data that will make it even better. So it's very cool. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know, like challenges in bringing all those people together versus, you know, so keeping it small, you know, as a PhD student, things can be pretty simple, you know, not simple, but like small scale enough that you could manage it barely. But as it gets bigger, <laughs> like, what are the challenges that you see? And, 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 you know, neither, I'm not an MBA. I don't know how to manage a nonprofit. Do, did you learn a lot along the way? Oh my gosh, I learned, I'm constantly learning. I mean, that's why I think when I decided to go into academia, I realized like it's just a lifetime of learning. And so yeah. meeting these people um, at this conference who we formed this nonprofit was truly a blessing because I am not an exec executive director. Like mm -hmm. I, often I'm like the, the face because I am a survivor advocate. I'm a survivor myself. I sort mm -hmm. of have that language. I have that knowledge. But, you know, Kyle, our executive director, he runs all the finances, all the operations, all of the accounting, like all these things that make me just sweat even saying yeah. out loud, like no way. And then Brendan, his primary thing is data security and data uh -huh. management. And he builds the platform, programs the entire thing from the ground yeah. up. We have a designer who does all of our aesthetics. Like it truly is a village. And so the one thing that I've learned is that you don't have to know everything to do something really cool and unique. You just have to know what you don't know and mm -hmm. connect with those people that can fill the gaps. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what do you see, I guess over, you know, since you, I mean, it, it already sounds like you've been here 10 years at Temple with, with all the things that you're doing, but what, you know, what do you see the next few years? And then also, 
you know, how do you, how, uh, maybe your, our listeners would really be interested in, in, in getting involved in supporting your research or getting involved in student, as students it, it, with you. I don't know, what do you see in the next few years are you developing, like taking PhD students or involving people in the lab? Maybe you can talk a yeah. little bit about that. I am so excited to be at Temple. I know in the nursing department specifically, our research infrastructure is really growing. We're really in a time of transition. And so we don't have a PhD program right now in the Department of Nursing. And I think that that's a goal going forward. But because my work is so interdisciplinary, I think really a lot of, I can use the help of really anyone under the sun of public health. I mean, I even yeah. was talking to a uh, faculty member, Sarah Bass, about, you know, how do we do targeted messaging strategies for survivors based on different things? So there's just so many um, opportunities. So right now I have a couple public health intern students um, and I'm forming this lab called what we call the Phoenix Gender-Based Violence Lab um, and really built under the principles that I was trained that Students are powerful, they bring a lot of knowledge, and they have a lot of experience and questions that they also want to ask that are complementary to our mission. So I, I have this mission on my board right here, and I, I, it's like my uh, kind of my uh, North Star as I think about uh -huh. projects that fall under my umbrella. But our lab mission really is to create a more supportive healing world for survivors of trauma and abuse by thinking about these pathways to recovery, but also these structural, social, and cultural factors that influence health and well-being for survivors. So if anybody has an interest in that sort of broad mission and you wanna get involved, whether it's like an individual project or piggybacking on some of the work that I'm doing, I absolutely love working with students. One-on-one -on -one mentorship in terms of research is why I wanted to be a professor. Um, and it just means so much to me. Uh, so I would love anybody, please reach out my email, laura.sinko at temple.edu. Um, but I see my work going in a lot of directions. We're looking more at photography and how it can be used to understand other types of trauma other people can experience. We're doing some really looking at, like I said, messaging, how do we, what are different types of survivors in their healing and how do we oscillate between these different types? Um, and I also just had a student from Lehigh reach out um, looking at healing in survivors that aren't women identifying. So transgender, mm -hmm. non-binary individuals and what does healing look like for them and what are their unique challenges? And that's just like a student that brought a project to me and saying, I wanna do photography in this population. And I was just like, whoa, yes, yeah. that's a total gap in the literature. Let's do that together. So I'm constantly inspired by students. And like I said, I can plan my five-year plan, but then it's like something looks really cool and it's like, this is worth exploring now, let's do it. So I'm extremely flexible and I'm just so excited to be um, connected with folks uh, and to have people be interested in this work. I mean, that's real, really the mission is to get more people doing what I'm doing because- Yeah, I think, I think that's awesome. I think you're probably gonna get, I imagine a flood of people and from other departments. So in the college, the, the amount, you know, the different departments that'll be interested in, I mean, you'll get a flood of you know, even people who are not, you don't think of traditionally being interested in, in issues like, like you'll get biostatisticians who are like, I really want to pitch in. So I think you're going to have a just dream. a rich group of people uh, really, really interested in this very, very important, um, in this very, very important idea. Um, do you have a few more questions? And then if there's anything that you want to highlight, one of the questions I had would be, um, you know, we have, uh, well, two things we have. Um, so I'm in speech language pathology. We have a transgender voice clinic that you might be interested in. Um, wow. 
And the people there would be really interested in your resource because again, as you mentioned, lots and lots of violence um, uh, there and a lot of them are survivors. Um, so I, I would like to actually, I think we should be publicizing that there. Um, and then um, the second thing I guess I had would be, how do you think like we, you know, Temple also has, a, it's pretty small, but an art therapy program. And I was thinking like, how do you think a traditional art therapy program would approach the same sort of population, same sort of issues that, as you're doing? Do you think there would be differences or do you think you'd converge on very similar ideas? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So one, thank you for, for the willingness to connect me with folks because I think, yeah, like, wow, like being new, it's like that exists. I need to, to meet with them. I want to partner with them. I want to learn more about their needs and what they're working on and, and what their clients and patients uh, are needing. But um, yeah, so, so I think in terms of art therapy, it's actually something I most recently have started diving into because when I do analysis on photographs, I really often look at the stories in conjunction with the images and they sort of go hand in hand. And recently I've been thinking, what could we learn by just looking at the pictures themselves through an art therapist lens? And so I very recently started dabbling. I, I'm a part of an international network of researchers as well um, who research cultural influences of violence on a national and international scale. And so one of our collaborators is in Greece um, and the other is in Israel, but the one in Israel specifically is an art therapist. She runs a school of art therapy. And so she was saying, what if we looked at these images through an art therapist lens? So we started sort of thinking and, and brainstorming. And the biggest difference that I noticed is this interpretation. So for me, in my work, I always let the survivor do their own interpretations. And I try to not put my judgment onto it. Um, but that's also my training, right? I don't have an art therapist background, so I don't, it's not really up to me to say, oh, well, there's some darkness in this corner of the picture, so it must mean this, I don't know. But seeing the way she looked at some of these photographs, and, and I think I always felt like it's judging. It's not judging, it's just noticing things. And mm -hmm. seeing things that she picked up on, I was like, wow, I didn't even notice the overall color scheme really says a lot about this. So that is to say that I think there's, it's rich for opportunities for collaboration. And I've learned that I think we bring different but very complementary skill sets that can really give us a better sense of what we're looking at when we're looking at this data. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, I have very limited experience with art, ther art therapy. We, we, uh, we, our department actually does the same, like so collaborates together with people with language, uh, people who are nonverbal and express themselves through art. But, you know, the issue around this idea of like, which color palettes you pick actually, you know, being significant and symbolically significant through, you know, almost all the way back to a, like a Freudian sort of interpretation, like if you use this color, it's an unresolved conflict from X. I, I wasn't sure like, you know, with survivors actually taking pictures, if you could draw that sort of same interpretation, because it's, it's, it's not like, painting where you're picking the palette, right? Or that like, you know, a lot of the pictures are probably with iPhones, right? They're not like uh, um, professional photographers who are really intentionally tweaking light or, or scenes in a way that like they're structuring the scene to get some symbolic, to some, some symbolism. So yeah. I don't know, can you talk a little bit? So you as a, you know, I guess this goes back to the, you know, we can, we can close this out with like your technical expertise and your hobbies as a filmmaker and photographer. Um, so what about that? Like, how do you, how did you learn how to do filmmaking? Like, 
Gra- you know, did you use like what's it like? Gra- not GarageBand, but like what's the Apple like? I film oh, it. Oh, I really. Did you actually like? Uh, it's so it's so funny because I really consider myself like a creative consumer. Like I yeah. love to be like surrounded by creatives. I always have been. I love being involved with art, helping out. But gosh, I don't have any skills. <laughs> I can't draw. I, I have like a creative mind, um, but I do not have any skills. So truthfully, that entire video, I emailed the film school admission. I emailed any department and I was like, look, I want to do this thing. I have no money, but I have a lot of passion and I can maybe find you $200 through fundraising and, and that's it. And there was a pre-med student who had a, had a side gig in film and said, you know, I want to build up my film repertoire. I, and I had no idea his skill set. I was like, you'll hold a camera, you'll do. And gosh, wasn't that video amazing? He is so talented. And since has, he's at uh, Northwestern now and med school, but just since it's an amazing thing. So like, again, I cannot take credit for anything. Really like the moral of my story has been know what you don't know how to do and find the person that can do it and snag them with the mission and snag them with your passion and why this matters. And gosh, we had a team of 25 volunteers Whoa. and it is amazing that all this turned out the way it did. So that's why I'm excited. We're showing the film on the 27th of October. And so the more people that can really view this film, it really makes it worth all the effort because gosh, there are moments where we were like, is this worth it? But it really, <laughs> really was. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's, you've won film festivals. And like when we rewind and I'm like, how did you learn about film? You're like, I know nothing about <laughs> Nothing. That's I just like it. Like, I just like it's great. It. I don't know. It's fantastic. So, you know, one of the keys is like you're you're really surrounding yourself with people who both have expertise and have passion and like, you know, really recognize the importance of the projects and you're able to marshal all that together yeah. really effectively, which, you know, makes you, you know, in, you know, you're, you're exciting to begin with, but that's I don't know, like the project, the, the, the products will just be so much better because of what you, you know, bring, bring all these people together. So yeah. I don't know. It's awesome. Exciting times for, for you and, and for Temple and just, well, you know, welcome to Philadelphia. I mean, you've been here a while now, but welcome to Temple. Um, anything we can, we can close out with? You know, any you messages know. you want to give to the listeners? Yeah. I mean, I just really appreciate being here, being able to share my work. And I just think it's always really important, like whenever I dialogue about these things, like as a survivor myself, like I think I'd be remiss not to just say like, one, if someone's really struggling with any sort of trauma, violence, like it does get better and healing is possible. And I think even just recognizing that healing is possible can be so difficult when you're really in the trenches of hardship and adversity and struggle. And also if, you know, people that you told about your experience weren't giving you the responses that you needed. I know it's really difficult to not be discouraged, but there are people out there that will listen. There are amazing resources on campus, like the Tuttleman Center, but there also is um, war, women organized against rape, which is not just for women, but for anyone who experienced sexual violence. So I just think it's really important to know that there are resources out there, they're free, they're accessible. Um, and also just, like I said, that healing is possible and it does get better and don't give up. So I would be remiss not to say that. And also if you want to learn more about healing and all the intricacies of that, 
Um, I am showing my film and an online photography exhibit that we developed um, on the 27th of October from 4 to 5.30, quick plug. It's like, again, when you're throwing a party, you hope people show up. So please come ask me more questions and please reach out to me as well. I always love to hear from students, faculty, survivors, anything that makes sense. Um, I'm always happy to see if I can help. And if I can't, who I can sort of direct you to that could help with whatever you're looking for. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Sago, thank you so much for uh, for being on the podcast and good luck with everything and, and you know, your listeners and tell, ever, tell all of us how we can help. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University. If you are interested in learning more about our academic programs and scholarship, or providing financial support to Common Voice, our programs, or students, please visit us at www.cph.temple.edu.